Good morning and shalom. We're starting a new series. Uh, Pastor Harold will be kicking us off. Uh, it's my privilege to read God's word for us, which comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3.16 and also select passages in 1 Corinthians. Please give your full undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. 1 Corinthians 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, at this time, let us give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Thanks be to God for his holy, precious, and powerful word. It is my thrill to launch this new series entitled Shalom, Shalom. This uh, title was crystallized uh, when I was struck uh, by the benediction of our Hebrew series, Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, there it reads, the God of peace, the God of peace, that is taken from and it means shalom. Perfect title for what we want to cover in the next 12 to 15 weeks. Because shalom, frankly, is what I want most. I think over the last two, two and a half years of pandemic, my own sabbatical, my own recovery of walking with God, shalom is what I want most, and shalom is what I want for you most. Uh, this is why Apostle Paul, a Jewish rabbi, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16 offers his own version of the benediction, which again reads, the Lord of peace himself, what Shalom will do is give you peace at all times in every way. Shalom at all times and in every way. Uh, you know, there are certain words that are just so rich, multi-layered, it's impossible to translate with one English word. You know, think of translating words from Chinese, Japanese, or Korean, or French. You know, it's impossible just with one or two words to convey the fullness of that word. Uh, you think about the movie Jerry Maguire, which I run to, the word Quan, which supposedly is, is in English, and that's impossible to convey with one or two words. How much more with the Hebrew biblical word and concept of shalom? In Hebrews, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, in the ESV, uh, they rendered it as peace. Uh, other translations say rest. But rest and peace neither do justice. So, two headings for us today as we launch this new series. What is biblical shalom? Second, we're going to apply shalom to stay as you are. Two headings. What is shalom? Second, Shalom to stay as you are. First, uh, one of the first usages of shalom 
14 times in two chapters occurs in Exodus chapter 21 and 22. There, Moses, inspired, led by God, instructs the people of God of how to conduct themselves in society, like how you run a civilization, like what a city should be like. And he says, in the case of property loss, material loss, asset loss, your oxen or your cattle was stolen. So specifically in the case of theft, what should you do? What are you supposed to do? Uh, in our day and age, of course, much more painful is theft or fraud from a business partner or maybe a former friend. Um, you might have been sued or going through someone suing you very, very unfairly. Exodus 21 and 22 instructs that, well, the one who has been robbed from is incomplete or lacking uh, that person is not whole. Therefore, the one responsible for the theft, for the robbery or the violation or the injury should, and here's all the English translations that I looked up, quote, make it right, or quote, make it good, or quote, shall surely pay, or quote, make full restitution, or quote, restore. So you see, the ancient Hebrew word, context, and meaning of shalom, which is scattered throughout those two chapters, is to make something whole. To make it whole again. Now, obviously, here in that context, shalom means the restoration of material, financial, property loss. It also could extend to things that were stolen from you, defrauded, or corrupted. But biblical shalom does not stop here. Not only does it cover material, financial assets, and property loss, it moves further into your health and wellness and well-being. Back in Genesis chapter 43, Joseph, who is still unrecognized by his very siblings and brothers, who treacherously betrayed him, sold him out. Then they lied to their dad that Joseph was ravaged and torn apart by wild animals at which their father tore his clothes because his heart broke because he had favored Joseph too much. Well, Joseph here in the presence of his brothers as somewhat like a prime minister of the kingdom of Egypt inquires of his brothers, how is your father? Of course, in his head, he's asking, how's my dad? How is my dad? How are you? And we pick up in these verses in Genesis chapter 43. Verses 27 and 28. And Joseph, he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Again, different English translations to well, well-being, good health, well-off, all come from one Hebrew word, shalom. Is my father well? Does my father have shalom? Do you have shalom? You know, if you love somebody, it's natural 
you want and you seek, their overall well-being. Right? I mean, the book of James tells us that you don't just pray for them. You want to be practical. You want to be present. You look for ways to serve them in ways that would comfort and strengthen them. You know, that's what the church is supposed to be about. You know, if we want shalom for you, you want shalom for me. That means we care about spirit and body, physical and mental and psychological and emotional and material and financial, of course. Back to 2 Thessalonians, the benediction of the rabbi Paul. I want peace for you in every way. See, every way. And at all times. Whether you're coming or going, whether you're well settled or you're in transition, whether you're completely confused and lost or you could not be happier, in and any, all situations of life, shalom for you. The context behind that is Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 26. The Aaronic blessing, the high priest Aaron, or Aaron, Aaron, is ironic, no pun intended. The context of the background to the Aaronic blessing is ironic because the occasion with which Aaron pronounces shalom to the people of God is right before they go out to engage in war to conquer the promised land. So get this, shalom could not mean the absence of literal war. Shalom does not require the absence of conflict. Shalom, one of its prerequisites is that you have no trouble, no turmoil, no blood, sweat, or tears. Or that you even have to go and fight. No, the ironic blessing was pronounced as the people of God were soon to engage in war. So the ironic blessing is peace. Overall well-being brought about by the shining face and protection of God. The ironic blessing is peace brought by the shining face and protection of God. And that is the benediction from Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord so bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in every way and at all times. At all times. Oh, shalom. There is such a thing as shalom. It's not conditional. It's not circumstantial. Shalom can be yours before and during the scariest moments of life. The hardest moments of life. It's not dependent upon time. Shalom. And ground zero of shalom is to be at peace with God because the most pervasive, consequential, and vicious war that all of humanity is engaged in 24-7 is they are at war with God. Your greatest warfare is not your spouse. It's not that enemy. It's with God. 24-7. 
Because your heart is naturally at enmity with God. But this is why Jesus Christ came down, shed his blood. And in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Apostle Paul announces, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are at peace with God through Jesus Christ in the gospel. Ground zero of shalom. Impervious to seasons, stages, situations, time. And it's shalom in every way. Bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why ultimately Jesus himself, after having risen from the dead, John chapter 20 verse 19 records how his frightened, weak, faithless disciples, they're huddled together behind locked doors. Oh, and then they saw something scarier. How freaky is this? Jesus, whom they thought had died publicly upon a cross, passes through those locked doors. <laughs> In his glorified body. So he just kind of just passes through. And then the first thing Jesus says and offers to his most frightened disciples is what? The words, peace be with you. The first thing Jesus offers is shalom. So let's summarize so far. What is shalom? What is shalom? Shalom is restoration. Shalom is completion, make it whole again. And of course, shalom is wholeness, wholeness of mind, heart, body, estate, welfare, the world, the climate, justice, social relations, all of humanity to be made whole again. This is the drive, the goal, the motivation, the preparations, the design and the prayers for the entirety of this series is shalom for you and for me. Because if Jesus Christ can forgive and restore the most wicked enemies and turn them back into friends, if Jesus can love people today right here listening in, right here right now, that are just frankly disinterested or at enmity. You don't really want to have much to do with God. You don't know how good he is. You have no idea what he's really like. And if he has the power to actually touch you and attract you and bring you to himself. Oh, surely if Jesus can do that, then he can surely make broken bodies whole again. He can heal broken minds. He can put back together broken hearts. He can recover broken marriages, broken relationships. He knows what to do with your broken finances. Oh, he really does. He knows what to do about the broken laws. He knows what to do with broken welfare. He knows what to do with the broken estate of politics. He knows what to do with broken communities and churches. Oh, even churches that are just being so threatened, pulled apart, divided. And then people just ghosting people left and right without even telling you. Jesus is the God of peace, the Lord of peace, who can make everything whole again, complete, restore. He can bring shalom. All right, now.
Shalom for what? Shalom to do what? Shalom to stay as you are. I picked this purposefully. Of course, you guys know because of this weekend. Today is some kind of holiday. I mean, tomorrow is some kind of holiday. First Corinthians chapter 7. Here in verse 8, we read, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul wishes and wants people to be like him. How? I want you to be more male. No. I want you to be Jewish. No. In this verse, he's not even saying, I want you to be converted. I want you to become a Christian like me. That's not what he's talking about. The context here is, I want you to stay unmarried. And listen to his full acceptance and appreciation of this state. He says it is good. Not okay, not barely complete, satisfactory, I'll get by. It's not an interim waiting period. It's not a wasted season. It's not preparation. It's not like a step toward your future fulfillment. It is good to remain single as I am. Now, what about Adam and Eve? Pastor, there it said, the man shall not be alone. So this was before the entrance of sin, before the fall. Pastor, I know my Bible. So it means to be alone, of course, is deficient in some way. You are absolutely correct. But after the fall, everything now has been corrupted and colored by sin. Therefore, that in a sinful, broken marriage, you actually could be sadder. You could become more conflicted. You can be more miserable. In sinful singleness or in sinful marriage. Chapter 7 verse 7 reads, Apostle Paul, the verse before, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Uh, everyone has different gifts. The New, T New Testament lists <clears throat> the richness and diversity of some gifts. I don't think it's, ex it, it's uh, exhaustive, but how do you know if you have a gift? How do you know if you have a gift? You know you have a gift when it comes more naturally to you. It's not forced. It's not like something you dread for the rest of your life. Again, I think you shared this before you junior high and high school. I mean, the dread of public speaking or the dread of having to talk in front of people. My goodness, I cannot, the, the sense of humor that God has in my life. But now it's a thrill, it's a joy, something that I get juiced up for. It comes more naturally. Now, how do you know you have a gift of to stay single? How do you know you have the gift of singleness? He gives an example of eunuchs. Yes, I think this is a minority, a, a rare few where they just don't burn. They don't have sexual tension and desires. It comes naturally to them. They don't feel like they have to have that kind of physical activity. Wonderful. But on the other hand, for most of you, you do know you do not have that gift. There is no way you have that gift of singleness. But I want to tell you this day, Paul, so Paul said it is good, therefore it is a discipline. You are a disciple. You are a follower of God. You are 
a called person. It is a calling, a calling, whether it's your gift or not, to give of yourself entirely God and to be filled by God. Hey, you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is only one chapter out of 16. And if you go through the Holy Scriptures and talk about singleness versus marriage or sexuality or not, it's like very few compared to hundreds and maybe even thousands of pages. It has to do with something else because the something else is way more significant than the topic we're talking about today. However, we have to talk about this topic today. You see, because your calling, if you believe and belong to and follow Jesus Christ, your calling, no matter what season or station or life stage or relational status you find yourself in, is not to change your status. Your goal in life is not to get out of the season you're in. No, your calling as a disciple is to love God with everything that you got and love your neighbor as yourself. Your calling in mind, I happen to be married, is to be available, faithful, teachable, pure, self-controlled. Your calling and my calling as a Christian person is to be useful, effective, worshiping, witnessing, serving. This is what the calling of God is primarily for you and for me if you follow Jesus. And this is why Apostle Paul can dare to say, it's good to stay as you are. It's good to stay as you are. Let me get to just some practical pros. Practical pros to remain unmarried. I assure you, this has all been vetted and confirmed and reviewed by my lovely wife, Sunny, as well. She approves. She approves. She agrees. Here's practical pro number one to remain unmarried. You will save lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money. Money. Do you like money? Do you want to keep money? You can save lots of money. Especially, I think it's a ridiculous holiday, Valentine's Day. Oh, you're such an auntie. Oh, you're such, so not romantic, Pastor. That's ridiculous. I remember when I was first dating Sunny, I think it was at Tyson's Corner Mall, Northern Virginia. I mean, not even ordained pastor yet. And I guess I just was moved to want to tell her, do you want a chocolate-covered strawberry at Godiva? I went and bought one. It's $5. $5, 21 years ago. I don't want to know what it is now. Who knows? That is theft. That is wrong. You can save lots of money if you stay unmarried. Now, in my life, being married to Sunny is the exception, not the rule. I have saved a lot more money because of her. And she would never want that chocolate-covered strawberry. Again, she thought, it was, she thought it was amusing that I tried that. But she could care less about those things. Here's second, a practical pro to remain unmarried. Time and energy. Time and energy. Oh, you know, what happened to John? 
John was so cool. He was always down. He used to always hang out with us. What happened to John? How come he doesn't hang out with us anymore? Oh, he got married. John can't hang out as much as he used to anymore. Sorry. He just can't. And then if John and Susan had kids, good night. It's not that they can't hang out anymore. They don't want to hang out anymore. They have nothing else to give. You know, there are certain seasons of life, if you don't know, if you have little kids, little kids, you don't have time to go to the bathroom. Time and energy is like really, really short. It's a really, really precious, rare resource. You know, some of the young, young adults, they tell me about uh, Netflix shows that they watch. And it sounds like they watch them all. Like every single one. And I'm somewhat jealous, but at the same time, like I like certain ones that I really like, but I don't know how you watch all of them. Good for you. Awesome. It's called time and energy. Maybe some of you are married with kids and you have watched them all. That's a whole other story. I don't know how you do that. But time and energy along with saving money. All right. Now let's get biblical. Pastor, I don't see any Bible verses to this. Why are you just going off on a tangent? Third, free from anxieties. Free from anxieties. Look at verse 32 of chapter 7. This is from Apostle Paul. It reads, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. You want to be less anxious? Stay unmarried. My wife left for a trip for Hawaii yesterday morning, really early. And I woke up yesterday and today feeling lighter and freer and happier. <laughs> I don't care who wins the Super Bowl today. I already feel like a winner. I've won. I've won. I have regained some semblance of sovereignty, kingship, dignity, like independence. Like I can eat what I want, when I want. I don't have to take a shower before I go to bed. Simple stuff. But man, you ask any married guy, especially when you have kids, do you know what that's like anymore? You don't even remember what that's like. Just dignity, dignity. I get to live my life a little bit. Trust me, Sonny has reviewed, confirmed all of this. She feels freer than I do without part from me. She needs to get away from me and the kids. But of course, this is about just the 72-hour window, truth be told. After 72 hours, everything falls apart. It's dysfunctional. She has to come back. A fourth practical pro, undivided attention. Undivided devotion, sorry. Undivided attention, devotion, pretty similar. Apostle Paul, once again, verses 33 to 35. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided and divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion to God. That means right here, right now. 
Even while you're listening to the word of God and the servant of God, you are unfiltered, undivided devotion to the Lord. But when you're married or you have kids, all kinds of things take your concentration away. Now, I know on the flip side, if you're unmarried, yeah, there's other temptations, of course. You might be distracted right now. Do you know that the, uh, a study came out recently, I don't know if it's scientific or not, that women say in general, men are more attractive with masks. Men, we've won. We've won. What does that say about us before? But anyways, men are more attractive with masks. And then, of course, there's all kinds of distractions and all kinds of other things that could go on when you're thinking about, did he or she notice me? Oh, my goodness. How can that person smell so nice even through the mask? Or what do I say or do later? But yet, here's what Apostle Paul says now. In the married state, do you honestly think that the division or the distractions cease? No, they actually escalate. You know, ministry for me... Uh, became a pastor, an intern pastor, right? Pretty young age, and I was a single young dude for a while. And I remember sleeping on dorm room floors, playing basketball all night, eating nachos, hanging out. I was always available. I could travel anywhere, anything. Every retreater speaking opportunity was yes. Could go anywhere I want. Pretty awesome. Ministry was different. Then I got married. I remember early on at the Artesia campus, I was working in the office pretty late at night. And I realized that someone had been sleeping in his car for some reason in that parking lot. And I just invited him over. Come sleep and hang out at my house. But this is after you're married with two little girls. And that created mm, a lot of fun at home. When you bring someone home, a stranger off the parking lot, it is not wise, it's not effective, it is foolish. Whereas when I was a single young dude, that's fine. Go and do whatever you want. Undivided devotion. Fifth, last but not least, there's a lot more, there's a lot more, but we just have time, time restraints, right? Less troubles. Less troubles. Verse 28, chapter 7. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, a, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Worldly troubles. Hmm? If you get married, Paul says, you're setting yourself up. You should expect, you know it's normal and it's guaranteed. All kinds of troubles set in. New ones. Oof. What is Apostle Paul doing here? Is he destroying the whole institution and the blessing of getting married? Not at all. Not at all. That's not what he's trying to do. Please don't hear this wrong. But he is dispelling this notion. That the grass is always greener on the other side. That the grass is greener on the other side. And I want to talk to some of you folks, brothers and sisters here. You are not even getting out of the gate to believe and follow and to be happy and to use it maximally, whatever season or stage you find yourself in, following after Jesus. If in the back of your head, you actually still believe, oh, 
But if I change my relational status, I'm sure the grass is greener on that side. No, it's not what Apostle Paul says. Who says the Bible is not the most immensely relevant, practical, and realistic book you've ever read? Apostle Paul is just balancing it. I said, no, no, no. There's pros and cons to each. There's good and bad to each. It's not a curse, the stage you're in right now. It's a calling. There's joys and sorrows to each. And yet, and yet, if you press Apostle Paul and ask him if he were teaching and preaching here, ran a dating seminar, a singleness and marriage seminar, Paul, what do you prefer? What would you recommend? Here's what he would say. Verses 37 and 38. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. He says, go ahead, get married. Wonderful, wonderful. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. Wonderful. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. He says it's better. Uh, verse 40. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Ancient times, ancient culture. Long before women's lib, or any of this notion that women don't need a man, Apostle Paul lays down here, Women, if you can stay as you are, or after marriage, or as a widow, you're happier. You're better off. So, shalom. Shalom. To stay as you are. Stay as you are. Remain as you are. Of course, I am not saying, don't stay immature and ungodly in your speech, character, and conduct, which is always harmful to people around you. Ungodliness actually is always toxic. But in verses 17, 20, 24, and 26, Paul repeats, this is a calling assigned to you. This is how God has called you. And then he says, three times, three verses, remain, remain, remain. Because in all seasons or stages of life, you ought to live it all out entirely for the worship and the glory and the pleasure and the service of God and thereby be so filled by him and his people. This is shalom. The grass is not greener on the other side. This is where you are at right now, what God calls and wants for you most. The prime, ultimate example, then Apostle Paul, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself. Unmarried, never got married, and yet he changed history more than anybody else. Unmarried, but please God more than anybody else. Unmarried, but loved and was loved. 
than any son could ever be by God. Why? Why did Jesus stay unmarried? Because he hates marriage? He didn't want to be married? No. It's because he was waiting for an ultimate perfect finale. A wedding that would last into forever, that would fulfill all of his dreams and hopes. A better marriage. He was engaged. He wanted to get married to anyone who needs shalom in him. He is, quite frankly, the standard to humanity at its finest and at its fullest. Is he yours? Is he yours? Is he your standard? Now, you might say, if you're listening to me, oh, pastor, that's an impossible standard. Are, are you really telling me today that you want me to be content, grateful, even happy? Think it's advantageous to stay as I am with loneliness? Repression and regrets with frustrations and tensions that I feel with all my longings. And then people my age don't even get me. They have no idea what to say to me. They don't know how to comfort me. And quite frankly, I feel like less than. I feel like I'm missing out. I feel like I'm deprived. I even feel ashamed. I kind of feel ashamed given my culture, my family, and maybe a church that always asks me and pressures me, hey, are you married? Why not? When are you going to get married? You're just telling me, be like Jesus, that should be my standard when I am going through all this stuff? You're absolutely right, my friend. He's an impossible standard. He's an awful standard. But he is the most perfect lover and savior. He's a terrible role model. Jesus is a terrible role model. That's religion. Just be like Jesus, act like Jesus, just try to imitate Jesus. That's religion, it won't work. But what if, what if Jesus could become the most active, influential, personal, beautiful, trustworthy person in your life? What if Jesus actually came into the most closest, deepest places to meet all those kinds of needs that, quite frankly, no relational status could satisfy. My dad used to hum or sing this, uh, this hymn. It's entitled, In the Garden. And the lyrics went, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Does Jesus walk with you? Does Jesus talk with you? Does he tell you you are his own? Do you know how to walk with Jesus? Do you know how to talk to Jesus? Do you know how to tell him he is your own? Is there the most precious, unadulterated time of romance 
that you have with the living Jesus? Is it unhurried? Do you tarry and linger there? Are there things that happen in your mind and heart that none other can really ever replace? And the joy we share, the joy we share, how good, how satisfying, how whole and complete and restoring it is to have Jesus, to walk and talk with him, will not only make your current life stage, and it will not only make everything that you're going through survivable, it'll make it actually more satisfying than anything you could think about the other side. Of all the things I pray for and all the things that I ask of you to do for shalom uh, is this. And he talks with me. And he walks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. If you don't know that joy... In Jesus, no other joy, no other joy can substitute for it. If you don't know the love of Jesus, if you don't drink and taste the love of Jesus, you're always going to look for it in your lovers. And now here's how you know that the Lord is really your shepherd, according to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Here's how Jesus comes to you and gives you shalom. Here's how he's the God of peace. Here's how you know he's functional and active and real and beautiful in your life. You wake up one day and you look all around you and you marvel. My, I can't believe how green the grass is. On this side. Because I have him. And he has me. I can't believe. How luscious. And radiant and vibrant. The greenery is. Because I am his. And he is mine. Terry there. Get it there. Share of this. Relish it. Praise God for it. And in this, my dear friends, may you receive and experience shalom. Jesus came back from hell to come back all the way for you to tell you, peace be with you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you this day, God, for the most practical, powerful, truthful, Word, I pray that all of it which is from you by your spirit would serve and heal and meet the needs of your people this day to bring about wholeness and completion. I pray for anyone here who longs for the love of Jesus to know a joy that surpasses all joys. Jesus, come. 
and speak to their hearts. May you make them yours. May they come and believe and follow you all the days of their lives. And may you pour out shalom. Lord, hear us this day for our joy, for your glory and pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.